Ephesians chapter 9, and we're going to take the first 13 verses today. Now, if you remember, the book of Romans is divided into three sections. The first section we completed two weeks ago, and that was chapters 1 through 8, and we saw the principles of salvation. We saw that in Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul was made it certain and very clear for us about man's need and God's glorious provision in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. It made it as clear as can be how man needs Jesus and how the Holy Spirit comes in and empowers us to do the work of the calling he has on our lives. We also studied that man's state was transformed from a state of condemnation to the state to justification, to sanctification, and ultimately to glorification. And it's by faith alone, in Christ alone, that that will happen. And there is no other way. Now today we pick up in chapter 9 and we see the second part or the second section of this book. And that's um, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we'll see the problem of salvation, and Paul brings a focus on the Jews. He brings a very specific focus on the Jews and how God's sovereignty is all involved from the beginning of time. In chapter 10, we're going to see the blessings that came to the Gentiles, which should absolutely bless us because we are Gentiles, and thank God that he brought the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and I, or we would be condemned and going to hell for eternity. So we should be celebrating what God's plan is of sovereignty, his plan, sovereign plan is. And in chapter 11, we're going to see the faithfulness of God toward and restoring Israel during the millennial kingdom. And then lastly, the third section is the practice of salvations, chapters 12 through 16, and those who are saved who received salvation, there should be a change in our lives. A transformation should have taken place in your life, and our actions and our words should and would be different and line up to the character, character of Jesus Christ himself. And we are going to see that in those last three chapters, and that is the actual practice of salvation. But today, as we look at the first part of the chapter 9, we're going to take the first 13 verses. If you would follow along with me, we're going to read those verses. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. And all of his saints said, Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That, in, it, <clears throat> that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, but the children not yet born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So as we take a look in these first three verses of chapter 9, you are going to see that Paul is going to bring attention to three kind of 
items or three things for you and I to take note. First, we want to hear, as we study the Word of God, we want to hear the heart of God in the Scriptures. We want to see God in the Scriptures. We want to see His heart. We want to know so that our heart can be aligned with His heart and how He thinks, His characteristics, how He responds. We also, we're going to see what blesses Blessings come from God, but also what blesses God. And we're going to see that as well in verses 4 and 5. And the sovereignty of God, we're going to see verses 6 through 13. Now, when we look at the heart of God, it's going to be very clearly demonstrated in Paul's words here. He takes a different approach. Paul always is very direct. He always puts usually things right up front, and then he explains things as his pattern in his writing. But here in this chapter, you can see the fact that he just got done explaining for eight chapters for us, to, obviously, but a few pages of, uh, of, of getting across to him how important it is that it's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus and putting your faith in him and not a religion or not in your own knowledge, your own understanding and all these other things that could hinder you in your relationship of coming to Christ and being transformed, being justified, being sanctified. So he switches very quickly and he says right up front, he says, <laughs> I tell the truth in Christ. Because you, know? you can see them. Because he's now a, a traitor to the Jewish faith. They're absolutely going, what are you telling us in this writings? And the Jews, as we know, started coming after him because of the fact that you used to be a Jew. Now you're being a follower of Jesus? Oh, you're a traitor. And you can see how crazy it must have been when they were reading that letter. And so he starts off like any of us, like, I'm, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is also bearing me witness of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get across how, how important it is for them to understand his heart. Paul is saying here that everything I've been telling you, everything I, in the beginning of this letter, these cha from chapters 1 through 8, everything in this letter, the beginning of this letter, I'm telling you is truth. Yes, Jews are condemned before God. This is truth. Yes, only those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will go to heaven. That is truth. Yes, even though you are Jewish does not mean you will automatically have eternal life. That is truth. And I am telling you the truth here. Now, that must have shocked them. But even more shocking for me as I read and as you read in verse 2, he goes beyond just saying, this is truth, I'm telling you. It's so easy for people to think they're telling the truth, right? But does their words of, of all truth, does it line up with love at the same time? Oh, how important is we tell the truth in love. You want to correct a brother and sister, tell them the truth, but do it in love. Well, he shows us in verse 2 very clearly. He says that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I'm grieving over watching and seeing your lives, and I know I've been there. I've done that. And I'm telling you, I'm grieving because if you don't understand what I've just been writing about and telling you from my heart, you're going to be lost. You're condemned, and you don't even know it. Because you think you're following religious ways and you're following the do's and don'ts. There's 613 of them. But that's not going to save you. It doesn't give you the promise of eternal life. Just because you showed up at the temple. Just because you were at the tabernacle. Just because you were at Jewish festivals. Let's eat. No, that doesn't save you. And he goes on in verse 3, for I could wish, oh, how I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh. Oh, you can see how desperately he, he was sitting there going, I really, really want you to be saved. I am willing I'm willing to be separated from Christ myself if that was somehow was going to cause you to be able to have that relationship that I have with Christ so that you will not be condemned to hell. 
the heart, the love that was coming from this man as he was telling them the truth. And he was saying, I mean, I don't know if I could do that. Yes, I could do it for my wife and my children. I could say, yes, God, please, for the sake of my children to be saved, I'm willing to be not saved so that they could be saved. But he's telling, he's saying this to, across all his countrymen, all of the Israelites. These are the same people who were chasing him from town to town, to city to city. Everything he could find to, to occur, accuse him and come after him and try to kill him. I mean, these people hated this man. But he still had a heart. He still had a love for these people. You know why? It's because he never forgot where he came from. He realized, I used to be them. I was the poster child of a Jewish leader. I was in prominent positions in the church or in the temple. I was on the supreme court of this religious following. I actually was willing and did kill others who were Christ's followers. I was willing to kill them because I thought they were a threat to the Jewish faith. He knew where he came from. And he knew the consequences of what that meant. But his heart was so grieved, he, oh, I wish, oh, I wish it was me. And yes, giving up our salvation will not save others. Because it's your and I choice. It's their choice to follow by faith in Jesus Christ. You and I cannot give up salvation for our sake of our children. They have to make that decision themselves, and they can only be the one that makes that decision. Paul had a heart like Moses, as we know in Exodus chapter 32, verses 31 and 32. If you remember, Moses was coming down from a mountaintop experience with God. In hand, carrying the Ten Commandments. Oh, you could must have think how he was coming down that very rocky, dry, mountain-top experience. But, oh, I've got the commandments of God. I get to share it with the people. And he gets down there, and what does he find? A rebellious people. They took all the gold and boiled it all down and created a God for themselves, a golden calf. And they were worshiping the calf. Oh, how grieving and upset Moses was. But if you remember in Exodus 32, 32, what, did, what, did, what was Moses' heart? It says Moses prayed and asked God, Lord, blot me out of your book. He was willing to take their punishment for their sin. Just like Paul, oh, I wish I could give my salvation up for those I love so dearly so that they could be saved. And just like Moses, oh, I, oh Lord, blot me out of your book. If that's going to save these people. So not only Moses shows the heart, but of course Paul also shows the heart of Jesus who was willing to be accursed on behalf of others that they might be saved. It was God who prompted the heart of Paul for this great burden for the people. Yet what Paul was expressing is not possible nor necessary to wish. Why? Why didn't he have to wish that? For there is one who has already been accursed by God in order for the Jews might be saved. Jesus already paid the price. We do not have to wish, oh God, take, take my children, not me. If that's what, He's already paid the price. We don't have to wish that. God has already taken care of it. But the individual has to make that decision for themselves. For Christ beca became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree, Galatians 3.13. See, Jesus already took the curse of God for man's sin and provided for Israel's salvation. And that is what Paul was getting over and over, trying to get across to them, and they were not connecting. They weren't, they weren't tracking with them. 
we should remember that when it is came to ministry, the Jews were Paul's worst enemies, but that did not stop him from desiring and loving the people. Charles Spurgeon said, Get your soul full of a great grief for the loss, and your little griefs will get will be driven out. Do you know how do you overcome these little griefs that we experience in our life that seem to take us down in a spiral emotional turn? It's because we take our and put our eyes on ourselves versus having a greater grief for the loss of those that we see going to hell and they, we, we have to have that loss for them because if we focus on others and helping others, we will think less of ourselves. You've heard me say this many times. The more I think about myself, the more miserable I become. The more you think about your little griefs that you're dealing with, the more miserable you will become. See, I hope we have not given up. We haven't given up on or forgotten our loved ones who are lost. Those who have not chosen yet to follow Jesus. The neighbors, the co-workers. You know, your Saphir who comes around inside your bubble moments. That God puts across your path that you're able to share the good news and be a witness and a light to them. Don't forget them. Have a sorrow and a grief like Paul to want them to be saved. Now we see in this second section the blessings of God in verses 4 and 5. He says, who are Israelites? Now Paul's going to get across to them, wait a minute, you're Israelites. Do not forget what God has done in your life. The blessings that have come in your life of what God's already done. He says right here, you are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh. Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. So here we're going to see seven blessings that he outlines to them to remind them of what God's sovereign choice is in regards to them specifically as Israelites. Can you imagine? This is the train of thought. Okay, Paul, you're explaining to us all this Jewish faith and all of our history and everything that you've done, uh, that God has done. Are you saying that that means nothing? That God really didn't love us and we weren't the chosen people? We're not. Paul's not saying that. Paul is saying that this is the new covenant I'm trying to explain to you. And let me go over a few things for you to remind you that God is sovereign and his ways are good. And so let me explain these to you. So he says there and he says the adoption. It's not just adoption, but the adoption. See, the children of Israel was God's chosen race of people. God had said to him, you will be my people and I will be your God, he said. Do you remember that, people? Do you remember that? Even in Deuteronomy 26, 18, and 19, it says, to Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise and in name and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the, God, to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Do you remember that? Why did God choose the Jews? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why. He just chose them. He's sovereign. There was a great purpose for it. But don't forget the parallel for you and I today. The parallel with us is that God chose us to be adopted into his family as well. Remember Romans 8.15, we covered that. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We too were adopted into Christ's family, God's family. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a blessing from God, is it not? That's the first blessing. Look at the second blessing he brings to light to them. The glory, the glory. He says, the glory speaks of the God's Shekinah glory, the visible cloud of glory showing God's presence among his people. Remember when the, um, uh, the, the Chabad that, was, that uh, came about, the God, the Chabad, or what we refer to as the glory in Hebrew, that's this heaviness, this weight. It, remember in, um, God said, okay, it's time to bring my people out of bondage from Pharaoh. They've been in bondage for, what, 430 years of bondage. And he says, he'll lead the people of Israel out of Egypt by the pillar of cloud, the Chabad, or by day, and the pillar of fire, Chabad, uh, by night. So he was guiding them by his glory, the glory, and guiding them and directing their lives, bringing them out of Egypt into the wilderness. Do you remember that? And when the cloud of, or the fire stopped, the people were to stop. When God stops, you stop. When he says it's time to go, you pack up, you go. Very simple concept. You just have to be obedient, right? So here we see that the, as any time the cloud or the fire stopped, the people would stop, set up the tabernacle of God with the Ark of the Covenant being placed in there, and his Shekinah glory would come and fill that place. We would see right there a visible and tangible presence of God's glory was so great. Even the priests had to sit down. They couldn't even minister at that point in time. There in the temple would come and fill that place. It would be overwhelming for the people. Isn't that beautiful? God was with them. The Shekinah glory which dwelt in the Holy of Holies, was a blessing to the people. What a tremendous blessing to the people. God led them. God guided them by his glory. But look at the parallel for you and I today. We see in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and me. You can go back and read John 14, 17, Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You can see the presence of God living in you and I as a believer. The, 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 the presence of God fills us. And this is very important because the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit is our guiding us and teaching us and empowering us and speaking to us and instructing us and helping us to simply live a simple life in contentment in the, the life that he glor that glorifies him in this present day. And not only will he do that, but he also then says, as we see in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that he may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So he will shine through your life and penetrate those in darkness around you. What a blessing from God. He reminded them of another blessing. Then he said the covenants. God gave them the covenants. What were the covenants? Remember the Abrianic covenant? covenant of circumcision, <clears throat> mosaic covenant, the covenant of laws and rituals and the tabernacle that allowed humans to enter in the Yahweh's presence. That was a covenant. Then you see the third covenant being the Davidic, Davidic covenant speaks to the establishment of the throne of God. God promises David and Israel that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come from the lineage of David and, the tribe of and through the tribe of Judah and would establish a kingdom. And that it was a covenant and it took place. But what is the connection for you and I in this same covenant? What is the covenant that God promises you and I? Well, we see now that we have a new covenant. 1 Corinthians 11.25 speaks to the cup. What cup is that? Well, if you go back and look at 1 Corinthians 11.25, you see that Jesus is up in the upper room with his disciples, and he takes the cup as the new covenant in my blood, and he says, this is the new covenant. 
Now, many people think the new covenant is the grace of God, but it is not. It is actually the new covenant is a blood covenant. So the question you and I should then ask is, what's the difference between their blood covenant and our blood covenant? Yes, the blood. That's the only difference. Remember the Old Testament, it was the bulls and goats um, uh, blood, and that just covered the sins of the nation of Israel. But our blood, Jesus' blood that has been given to us, been shed for us, takes away our sins once and for all. Matthew 26, 28 makes it clear, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. Is that not a blessing to you? It certainly was a blessing to the nation of Israel that their, their sins could be covered until the next time they came and had to sacrifice. But for us, Jesus came once and for all and finished it by dying on the cross and his blood wipes away the sins once and for all. Oh, that, what a blessing that was. That's the ultimate blessing, is it not? Makes you as white as snow. Not to let you know that, that so, so soon and very soon we're getting snow. But just remember, that is a blessing. Now, you guys are cursing it, but snow coming is a blessing to remind you that you've been forgiven of your, and cleaned up and you're white as snow. Amen? That's a grunt, a holy amen, or whatever you want to give me here. So, now he says the law is a blessing. Did you know that? The law was a blessing. Even at 613 of them in the Old Testament, these principles gave the Jews the ability to have a, a good life or a succeed in life. God was providing boundaries to help them so they wouldn't get hurt. Yes, they went crazy and they went into the religion and started adding more do's and don'ts. But what God gave them was good and it was right to help them to succeed in the life that God was giving them during this time in the, through the wilderness into the promised land. We too have a law, do we not? What is the law? It's not 613, it's just one. And that's the law of love. We're to love God and love others. That's all we're commanded to do. We're to love. Is that not a blessing? Tremendous blessing. The next one he gives to the, the readers here, he says the service the service, or it, it, in the words it says the, the service of God, but if you look at your Bibles really clearly, you can see of God is egalicized, meaning in the original language that was not there. It's just the service. You are to serve God. We see the blessing which comes from when the service that we do is to God. Not of God, but to God. The service to God, right? You, you serve at your work. To God. That's why you go to work, is to serve God. You, you, you serve in, in your work, in your school, or even when you're on vacation, your service is to God, whatever you do. As long as you keep that in perspective, there's blessings that come from that. And of course, our example, our ultimate example, of course, is found in Matthew 20, verse 28. Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's our example. To freely give. To serve. What a blessing that is to be able to, to be empowered by God to do a service to him wherever he takes us. Then he gives them the promises. He reminds them of the promises here towards the verse in the first four. He says, all the promises... Here speaks to the prophecies pertaining to Israel. Such a blessing to hear from God the future events to come. I mean, imagine God kept giving them promises. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. These are the prophecies. They're going to happen. What a blessing that God was giving him of us a foresight of what was going to take place. But we too have the promises of God. But the question is, do we believe in the promises of God? If so, it will be seen in our lives. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in, in him, amen. It's complete. It's great. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we have the promise concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
We have a promise. If someone is absent from the body, is the presence of the Lord. Oh, what a blessing to have that promise. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we have the promise. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So not only do we see someone who has passed before us have the promise, oh, they're going to be in heaven, but we also have that future promise of knowing that when we're absent from this body, we'll be in the presence of the Lord as a child of his. What a blessing and a reassurance and peace that comes upon our lives. This is a great blessing of God. Oh, and then he says the fathers, the fathers. He reminds them of the heritage that they come from. That God's sovereign choice of how he was using that nation of Israel was not, is not some wishy-washy kind of thing here. This is a very distinct divine plan. He says right here, he says, and the fathers, the people of Israel were so blessed with great men in their heritage. Paul was also considering that not only that human heritage, but the fact that Israel had not was given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament that we see, because Jesus himself also came from Israel, don't forget, and that the spiritual legacy that also is followed here of Israel's unbelief makes it very complicated. So basically he's saying, okay, now, what I'm trying to explain to you that where Jesus is coming in to fit in this is also part of the lineage here of, of Israel. But remember, it started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can watch and look at through all the prophecies and all the things that God's spoken through, through the scriptures. You can see that thread right to Jesus Christ. So you rejecting Jesus is very complicated for you to do that. You, should, you're, you have to really say, no, I refuse to believe what is written that God has written and put it right in front of me. That's really what he's saying to them. It started with the fathers. It was started with God's plan with the fathers, and it brought it all the way through to the Messiah as he promised, and that is Jesus Christ. And so when he says that, and he brings that, that clear statement in front of them, he makes a very distinct um, statement in verse 5 here. Did you catch that? In Romans 9, 5, Paul speaks the truth here that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Do you see that? He made it very clear. There was no wishy-washy here if Jesus Christ is God or not. He made it very clear. We even see it in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed, capital S should be in your Bible, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, he just says singular seed, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead, of the triune God. He is God himself. We see that even written in 1 John 5.20, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. We also see it in John 20, 28. Thomas said and answered and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He even says in Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be under his shoulder and his name will be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Is that clear? Jesus even confirms it in John 10, 30. I and my Father are what? One. Even the Father himself says in Hebrews 1, 8 says, but to the Son, capital S in your Bible, he says, he being the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So Paul was being very clear that Jesus Christ is mighty God. What a blessing. Now we see the third section today. Verses 6 through 13. Now they have received the word of God. They received the covenants. They have received the laws. They have received the promises. They remember their heritage in the fathers before them. They received all these blessings that Paul is reminding them. 
Now, Paul talks about the grace of God upon Israel. And he does this when he says, God has absolute sovereignty in the choice and the management of nations for world functions and for individual lives. And that is because he's going to bring about the last, everlasting, that subjection to him, that complete surrender to him and for his sovereign purpose. Just remember that as we're in a crazy election. Remember, God is in control. He is going to have his sovereign plan play out regardless. Just know he's in control. When you think your life's upside down and you're not sure what's upside down or what's up down, you, nothing's going as the way you planned it, then turn to the one who has a sovereign plan for your life and you will not have confusion. Very simple. Not always easy. <laughs> not always easy. Very simple. Turn to him. But not all Jews rejected God's grace, did they? It says right there, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. I mean, it has taken effect. The word of God got out. Some of the Jews were believers. Look at Paul. Many were believers. Not all of them, though. Not all of them wanted to believe. They did not want to turn their, turn their faith to that. But he explains why not all of them was willing to do that. It says, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Israel stands for governed by God. So he's basically saying, not everyone here in the Israel family here are governed by God. That's why they're not living the way they should. They're not willing to make the change. The Jews doubted. They want to know, why Paul? Why? What do you mean we're not saved, we're not going to heaven? I, I can't believe you're saying these to us. He says, wait a minute, not all of you are governed by God. Yes, you might be hanging around like you're, you're, you're Jewish and you're part of the Israelite family here, but you're not allowing God to govern your life. There's a difference. God had made a sovereign choice among the physical descendants of Abraham in establishing a spiritual line of promise. Did you not know that? We see it very clearly in the scriptures. He starts off by using the example of Isaac versus Ishmael in verses 6 through 9. If you look at that, look at those things. He says, and are not, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but I, in Isaac your seed shall be called. If you're part of the lineage of, um, of Isaac, then you have been called. You're part of Abraham's lineage that is going to bring about the Messiah and bring about the, the chosen people. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, speaking of Ishmael, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So when we take a look at that and we see that in Gavrin's sovereignty, he looked at Abraham and Sarah's life, Genesis chapters 13 through 15. They could not have a child at that time because she was barren. She was 80 years old at the time. But God in his wisdom and sovereignty came and spoke to Sarah and says, you're going to have a child. Hello? <laughs> I haven't been able to have a child, and I'm 80 years old. Hello? Leaning in my own understanding, this doesn't make sense. But remember, but God. Remember that statement? But God. But God spoke to her and said, oh, no, you're having a son. And we see and continue, even though you're 80 years old, you're going to have a son. But it wasn't happening. So what happened? Sarah decided in leaning on her own emotions and her own just leaning on her own understanding, decided that she needs to help God out. Like God needs help or something. And so in her flesh, she comes to her husband Abraham and it says, I've got a great idea. Why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, and lie with her and so that we can have children now? Now, of course, Abraham said, are you crazy, woman? Of course I'm not going to. No, he didn't do that. Now, let me remind you, men, when your woman says something, something radical like that, that is a time when you don't listen to your wife. Every other time you can listen to your wife. But that's the time you do not listen to your wife. 
Because in that fleshly response or fleshly way of trying to get her way, that is never pleases God. Do you know that? When you do something, even with the right intentions, because I'm sure, because God wants us, me to have a <coughs> fill in the blank. No, 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 no. If it's in the flesh, it will never please God. And sure enough, grudgingly, little old Abraham had to go lie with Hagar. And sure enough, Ishmael was born. Now we know later on, that we see in Genesis 25, verses 1 through 4, that he also took another wife, Keturah, and had six more sons. But interesting, God has a promise. He keeps his promises. He's faithful, is he not? So even with all the emotions and, oh, this is never going to work out, and, oh, we've got Ishmael, now we have six more sons. Oh, this is all going to work out. It's just going to work out. It's not going to work out because God made sure, told them that it wasn't going to work out. And he made it very clear to them. And he says, to, and, and what happened was that, that yes, these are Abraham's descendants, but they were not going to be counted as Abraham's children born in the line of promise. Because God told Abraham in Genesis 21, 12, it was going to be through Isaac that your offsprings will be birthed. He made it very clear to them. Ishmael was just as much as a son of Abraham as Isaac, but was, uh, but Islam, uh, Ishmael was a son according to the flesh, and Isaac, Isaac was a son according to the promise given to Sarah. One was the uh, heir of uh, the heir of God's covenant salvation, and the other one was not. Regardless of how she was feeling or they were feeling at that moment, even though Ishmael was born before Isaac. It was not going to happen because God is going to give all the honor and get all the honor and glory through all this. And because Sarah chose to do it in the flesh, now God doesn't get that honor, does he? She could claim, I made the decision. We made sure this made, made it happen. Pulled, you know, we're going to make it happen, Abraham. We're going to make and help God out. Doesn't mean it's going to be good. Oh, how many Ishmael fleshly decisions we've made in our life that we hindsight look back and go, man, I got what I wanted. Man, I wish I had not. Wish I didn't do it. Paul tells us that no one is truly Israel unless he is governed by God. We have that same parallel, do we not? There are many who call themselves Christian, Christ-like, but they are not governed by God. Christ is not their Lord. Oh, they, they take the name so freely. They want the benefits of the ministry. But they don't want to be governed by God. Are you a Christian in name only, or are you a follower of Christ? We must be a follower of Christ. We must be governed by God. Are we acting Christ-like in the demands we speak? The places we go, the things we do, do they line up with the character of Christ? Do people know that you're a Christian? Do they know that, you know, without a doubt, without you even speaking, they can look at your life and know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Or like many Christians, they find themselves hiding in secret and, and keeping their light under a basket so no one can really find out that they're a Christian because if they find out at work, then they're going oh, to come against me, they'll cast me out, blah, 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 blah. Then Paul moves on to another a second illustration here, Jacob and Esau. The second illustration he gives here is of God's sovereign choice, and he uses the next generation to bring about that example. Isaac and Ishmael was the first generation. Now he reminds the next generation, what about Jacob and Esau? Now this one's a little more difficult to, to really understand, God's sovereign choice, is it not? 
you can understand, oh man, that's the maidservant, of course. That was very obvious that that was not of God. But God's choice of putting Jacob over Esau, the younger over the older, that was not, that's not the way we play this in the Jewish faith. But see, God has a plan. God established this clear principle at the beginning of his relationship with his chosen people that he is sovereign and his decisions are good and they're right. But this time it involves God's choice between two twin, two twin boys. Rebecca's twins, had we see in the scripture, had done nothing good or bad. It's not like they one screwed up and said, okay, you really messed up. You're, you're out. We're going to bring the next one in. No, that didn't have any play in it. We see that in the scripture right here. It wasn't based on works. One did more of, was more godly and did a lot of good works for God. And so the other one didn't do anything. He was lazy. No, no, that, not, that wasn't a factor either. But God informed Rebekah that the older will serve the younger, Genesis 25, 23. A divine choice confirmed by God's declaration. And he says in verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He, re he repeated Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3 right there. So Rebekah, thinking in her own emotions and her own, leaning in her own understanding and things weren't coming in line, things weren't coming the way she wanted them and her timing, um, her husband uh, Isaac was about to die, and this can't happen. If, 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 he, if my husband dies before this this blessing gets laid, he lays hands on his uh, the uh, the younger, my the one she really liked. The scripture says she loved the younger more than the older. Um, we we got to make we have to do something here, and so we know in the scriptures because she thinks she's helping out. God in this situation, she tricked her husband Isaac by getting the blessing to be put on Jacob. And you remember the story, she overheard uh, uh, Isaac tell uh, Esau, go out there and hunt and get some food, bring it back, prepare a beautiful meal for me. Because when you come back, I love the food you make and it's very gamey. And I'm going to lay hands on you and I'm just going to give you the blessing and blah, 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 right? Well, she overheard that. She didn't want that. She wanted Jacob. So she's, hey, he's going to go out there. It's going to take some time. You uh, go get the, you know, the, the, the choice uh, animals there, and, and we'll prepare them, and I'll make his favorite, and he'll love it so much. And then we take from the, uh, the hair the, of the dead carcass and put it around your neck and on your arm because, man, Esau is a very hairy, red-headed red man. So you're going to make sure you go in there because he's going to want to smell you. So even, she even got the best shirt that really smells really um, uh, gamey and put it on Jacob so that he could smell him too. Because his eyes were dimmed, he couldn't see. And remember in the scriptures, he questioned it three times, and Jacob lied. But they fooled the old man. They got the, he got the blessing. And just as he was leaving, here comes Esau. Woo, Esau wasn't a happy man, was he? Mom had to send Jacob away. Dad had to send Jacob away because big brother was going to take him out. And he's a hunter. Man, you can run, but my bow will catch you. You know, it's not going to happen. You can run and hide. I know how to hunt you down like an animal. But God preserved him. Now you read that and you go, why? But if you remember Isaiah 55, 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, we have to remember that God's ways See, God's choice between Ishmael and Isaac's, yeah, again, seems logical. But God's choice of Jacob to be the heir of God's covenant of salvation instead of Esau, that you just have to trust that God knows what's best. And it's because of his foreknowledge, God makes decisions. 1 Peter 1.12, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have 
everlasting life. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some might, might count slackness, but is long-suffering towards not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That should demonstrate the fact that his sovereignty, that his love, his great love for us, he wants none to be separated from him. But remember, there is the way. And the way is to, by, through Jesus Christ only. It's the only way to get to heaven is through and by Jesus Christ. He made that clear to all of us. There is no other way. Our greatest error is concerning the choices of God is to think that God chooses arbitrarily. Oh, God loves me. God loves me not. Today, God loves me. And tomorrow, God loves me not. But that's not how God thinks. He loves you. Did you hear that? Can you repeat it? God loves me. He made that decision. Even though you and I may have rejected him, he gave and was so willing to wait patiently for you to come to him. Why isn't Jesus coming back yet? Because he's long-suffering. He's waiting for more to choose to come to him. We may not be able to fully comprehend God's reasons for choosing. I know that why God choos chose me. I, I'm thankful. I'm, I, I, I'm in, I'm just in awe of the fact that he loves me. But there are reasons he alone knows and answers to. But God's sovereign choices are not emotional. He has a plan and a reason for everything. Now immediately, as the Jews may have said, well, that's not fair. Paul does anticipate this reaction, and we will see next week in verse 14 and finishing the chapter 9, we're going to see him address that, again, we'll continue on the theme of God's sovereign choice. Let us pray.